Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. If you love the games, we are the show for you. Each week we share stories from athletes and people behind the scenes to help you have more fun watching the games. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello, how are you? That would be not Allison this week. It is Small Defender. <laughs> I thought about that because I don't think anybody's on Twitter much anymore or the fact that maybe I don't post regularly enough that my posts never see the light of day. I think I've narrowed my B-girl name down to either pretzel bread or baguette. I got to go with pretzel bread but because we can drop some vowels in there and make you like <laughs> pretzel brood. That's how you pronounce it without vowels. <laughs> And you could do like your signature move could be like the pretzel. Could... I know. See, the that lended itself to twisting. Whereas if I was baguette, I would wear a beret on my head. Oh. <laughs> now you're getting fancy. <laughs> All right. Well, let's see how fancy we get when we talk breaking today. <laughs> oh, this is so exciting. We are looking at one of the new sports for Paris 2024, breakdancing. We are talking with breakdancer Sunny Choi. Sunny, whose B-girl name is Sunny, has competed at three world championships, including a silver medal in 2019 and seventh place in 2022. And at the 2022 World Games, she scored a silver medal. Sunny also has an MBA from Wharton and recently left the corporate world to focus on qualifying for Paris. We talked with her about how breakdancing works. Take a listen. Sonny Choi, thank you so much for joining us. We are excited to explore one of the new sports on the Paris 2024 program. I will say this. We have not had high hopes about the commentary <laughs> that will go with it. That's and, and really, a lot of our listeners will be watching on the feed. Mm -hmm. And they haven't been very stellar so far. Youth Olympic Games, not so great. World Games, also a little bit better, <laughs> but not so great. But we want to break down what what is involved with the sport and how we at home can figure out what's going on besides mm -hmm. how cool it looks let's break down the battle because mm -hmm. it is called the battle correct yes absolutely we still call it a battle that's, that's <laughs> cool how many rounds in a battle okay so at the olympics it actually depends on where you are in terms of the battle bracket as to how many rounds you're going to have so early on in like the top 16, we have something called a round robin. So you have two rounds per battle. And so in that section, you're battling three different people. And I think people are familiar with round robin from other sports where you don't necessarily have to win every single battle, but you're doing it to get the most points so that you move on to the next round. And so there you'll see two rounds per dancer in the round robin. And then after that, it's either two or three. So in some instances, we'll have something called best of three, where you battle. And if you win two, you don't have to do the third round. If it's a tie after the first two rounds, then you go a third round. And then in the, I believe the semis and the finals, you do three straight. So regardless of who wins the first two battles or the first two rounds, you'll go three rounds, each person. And at the Olympics, we have, it's going to be one-on-one. -on -one. So it's one dancer versus one dancer, whereas like outside the Olympics, we'll have other formats. Is the round robin also one-on-one -on -one, or will there be multiple dancers on the, the floor at the same time? It is one-on-one. -on -one, and then how they see it is like there's groups of four. So you battle okay. three different people. So you battle everybody kind of in your grouping and then only one, no, two people move on from there, from each group. So eight move forward from the 16 that were in the round robin. So this could potentially be a long day. It's absolutely a long day. It's <laughs> an extremely long day. I don't know that they've yet announced how they're going to break up the battles for the Olympics. 
at our World Series events, we actually have additional competition that we have to get through. So we have prelims, depending on how many people were sent to the World Series event. We'll have an entire day, actually, where we go down from anywhere from like 100 to 200 dancers, and we whittle that down to 16. And then either top 16, sometimes we'll go from round robin all the way until the finals in one day, as opposed to splitting it up in two. And when that happens, it's an extremely grueling day because we're doing so many rounds. Not back-to-back, there are breaks, but it almost makes it harder that there are breaks because you can't completely cool down between them because you have to be ready to go again and again and again. So yeah, it's pretty exhausting. How does that affect your strategy when you think about what you want to do in a battle? Or are you just like, I have a catalog of moves in my head and this is what I'm feeling with the music and I just go? That's more or less what I do. Everybody approaches it differently. And in this dance, there's a different, there's a range of how much people freestyle in their rounds. So I would say I freestyle about about 80%, 90% of my round. And then only, you know, 10 to 20% is planned. It'll be something kind of more technically difficult to weave into the rest of my round so that I kind of get that mark. But other people actually from top to bottom will be choreographed. So it's like a little bit more like, you know, gymnastics or figure skating. And so you have a pretty wide range. And so because of that, I think everybody approaches it differently. For me, I don't like to repeat from even from day to day or from, you know, battle to battle. You're not supposed to. So I try to make sure even if I'm going to do something similar, at least I change it up if it's between, you know, day one and day two. There are some dancers who I've seen just completely repeat rounds. It's not my favorite thing, but, you know, um, <laughs> it, it works for some people. But, yeah, I think depending on whether you're mixing, whether the battle is split between day one and day two or whether it's all in one day, that does affect how you kind of plan your rounds. I mean, these judges are looking at a lot of dancers in one day, and so they're not going to remember every little thing that you do. And so given that, I think you, it does leave some opportunity to repeat here, things here and there, as long as it's not super obvious. And then obviously between two days, it's a little bit easier to do that because we'll forget a little bit more. Have you found that the set choreography dancers are younger in that they've come up in this much more formal competition scene, whereas you came up in a much freestyle, <laughs> but mm-hmm. sort of a wild west of breakdancing? That's a really cool observation. I do think that if you choreograph your rounds, you can kind of get to a higher level of competition faster, right? Because you don't necessarily need the vocabulary that somebody who freestyles does. And so I do feel like, generally speaking, that does help you to get to a high level a bit quicker. I think there are also other factors, though, as to why people get better faster, because today now we have, you know, some countries have dance schools and dance centers and they're just like churning out dancers that are really high level very quickly. Also, you know, YouTube. I mean, I started in the YouTube age, but obviously with that and more people having access to information and videos and live streams of these events, it's like you get to see what other people are doing and whether or not you you use that to better yourself or not is up to you. But, you know, you see people who are like picking up things from what they see and just more access. I mean, on YouTube, you have tutorials for like every single move that's out there nowadays. And so you can find somebody, even if you don't have access to a dance studio or a teacher, you can learn whatever you want to learn. So I think there's a lot of factors outside of just that. But absolutely, I do think that kind of choreographing your rounds helps you to get better and compete on this level faster. So what are some of the moves called or do you, are they broken down into categories like these are on your feet, these are on your hands, these are on your shoulders, or these are on your head? How do we understand? Because really, when we look at it, it's like, well, this is cool. And now they're on their back and now they're on their head. But I don't know what's more difficult or what, what the judges look at or what they're looking mm-hmm. for. So we typically kind of bucket breaking into a few categories in terms of like the different types of movements we do. So we have something called Top Rock. And that's all the dancing that people do on their feet. A lot of times we like start around with top rock because it kind of gets you to the center of the floor and you start grooving a little bit. You show, hey, I know this song or hey, I can dance. And then we have something called footwork, which is when you have, you know, your hands and feet on the floor. So it's like this kind of mid-level. 
and you'll see a lot of these kind of circular motions on the floor and a lot of like technical footwork. Um, we have freezes, which that's when somebody hits a pose. It doesn't have to be a difficult pose. You can literally just cross your arms and stand there to the music, you know, but you, you want to do that to the music to kind of accent parts of your round. <clears throat> some of them will be difficult, some not. And then we have power moves, which are the crazy dynamic movements that you see that everyone gets super excited about. And so those are like the kind of traditional categories that breaking kind of is built on. But how the judges are going to be judging the Olympics is not necessarily on any of those specific categories. So you don't have to go there and do a little bit of everything. It's more of this kind of overarching system that looks at, well, in terms of technical ability, when I'm looking at these two dancers, who is doing things that are more technically difficult and executing better? How are they using up the space on the floor? How musical are they? How creative are they? So there's these different facets that they're going to be looking for that span all of those different categories. And so we as dancers can actually kind of go and do our thing. And as long as you do your thing better than the other person does their thing, ideally, you know, you win that battle. Are there any objective measurements of terms of this move has this level of difficulty and is objectively viewed as more difficult than this B move? So the thing about breaking is, I mean, we could break some things down like that because there is an evolution of movement to a degree. But when you get to the, you know, the Olympic level or like the higher levels of breaking, people have taken the foundation and you're supposed to make it your own and create derivatives and variations that are very unique to you. And so because of that, it's actually kind of difficult to say, oh, well, this one is much harder than this one. And it's also kind of based on your body type, too. You'll see different people with different bodies move differently. So some movements are easier or more difficult, depending on the type of body that you have. And you even see that difference between like men and women. There's a, a specific freeze that like people you know, used to call like a quote unquote, b-girl freeze, because of the way that a woman's like center of gravity typically is women would do that version of a freeze and then men often would do another one. And it just has to do with anatomy. And so I think with breaking, it's really hard to objectively say, well, this is more difficult than this. And then the next level of that is, an, you know, it's whatever else it is. And then again, with the variations, like the very unique variations that other people make of movement, it's like, how do you categorize that? How do you categorize that? And the other pieces, you don't want everyone else to be doing it <laughs> because you want to be unique. I mean, the whole point of breaking is, it's a it's an art form as well you know it's about creative expression it's about exploration and so you want to do things that feel unique and special to you but and they don't even have to be difficult sometimes it's just like this ingenious thing that you came up with it's not difficult at all but it's just so genius that that's what makes it so good you know so yeah in breaking we don't have that but i think that if we were to do that that would probably kind of really change the way that people danced yeah, because it, it doesn't seem like there's, it's not like, say, figure skating where you have a point value, anything. It's, mm -hmm. it's a judge is looking at the whole package mm -hmm. and it probably helps them to know you as a dancer and to like see, oh, here's what we've seen Sunny do before mm -hmm. and what she can do now kind mm -hmm. of thing. Yeah, for sure. A lot of the judges are judging I'm assuming a lot of the Olympic judges will have already seen us in a lot of these World Series events and have seen our growth over the years as well and kind of get to know us and the way that we move and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely going to be some familiarity there with the judges and, and the dancers. When you're battling, do you have a sense of how well you're doing compared to the other person or no? Yeah, actually. So a battle is like very much a conversation. When somebody is choreographing their rounds, I think there's a little bit less conversation happening, but you can still read it on people's faces. So sometimes like I'll throw around and then you can see on the other dancer's face often where they kind of gauged you at. And then you can tell based on their level how much they're throwing against you, whether you did really well and they feel like, oh, I need to like throw everything out now because otherwise I'm not going to win. Or whether they think like, oh, well, that wasn't that good. So let me save some stuff and I'm just going to kind of like take it easy on this round, you know? And so there's definitely that happening in the background because you get to know we're battling a lot of the same people in this circuit. 
So you get to know them. Plus, I don't do a great job with this. I should be studying other people, but they're studying me. So they know my arsenal and they know what's, what works, what doesn't, what I do is like safeties and, you know, all of that. And so they, you can kind of gauge based off of how they react to you, how well you did. And then additionally, obviously, there's the crowd, but the crowd can be very biased. So depending on where you are, that could change as to whether you can actually trust that or not. But sometimes that can be helpful as well as a gauge as to whether you did something really well or not. Is there actual conversation happening during battles? Sometimes. Sometimes we do talk to each other. And by talk, do you mean trash talk? We love yes. good trash talking. <laughs> I'm not known for that, but there's a lot of people who absolutely, yes, they do that. And I mean, it is a mental game as well. The people who do that, they're just trying to get in your head and they're trying to psych you out. So yeah, you'll do hear some conversation. We have gestures that like we all know what they mean in our scene. And so there's something, it's like the bite symbol, which we don't throw out often, but you basically take your like forearms and like, like chomp them together like a mouth. And it means that you're copying someone else's movement. And so when you do something like that, everyone in our breaking scene knows what you're saying to the other dancer. Another thing is if I notice a crash or a slip up, I might tap the floor. And that means, you know, you crashed. Or we often, I mean, this one's a bit cheesy, but you'll like tap on your wrist to be like, hey, hurry up, you're not doing anything. Like you're wasting time, get off the floor. And so (laughs) we have all these little burns and stuff. So like, even if it's not verbal, there is definitely some nonverbal communication that happens up there. Is there regional differences? Like will an American dancer look very different than a French dancer? Oh, absolutely. I think... There's obviously going to be anomalies and people who kind of look like they're from somewhere else, whatever. But generally speaking, there's definitely influences in different scenes that affect the way that people dance. For example, I think like a lot of American dancers are actually known for freestyling more. And I think part of that comes from breaking comes from the U.S. And that's like very much rooted in the culture of breaking And us being so close to where it all started, it's like we can't get away from that. That's what breaking is for us. Whereas in, let's say, Asia, where they're much more removed, you're going to see a bit more of these kind of choreographed sets. Not always the case, of course, but you will see some of that. And then there's like a very, like, they're super clean and technical. Um, A lot of them, especially nowadays, a lot of them are learning in studios and they're learning from teachers and That's what they're teaching over there is be very clean and make sure that your execution is really good. You know, there are some countries that have really, really creative dancers. There's a dancer right now. He comes from Kazakhstan and he has this like very interesting way of moving that kind of breaks the norm. And I mean, I think I believe that there are some people in the breaking scene who question like, are you even breaking anymore? But it's like a it's just a very interesting way that he sees breaking and way that he chooses to move. And he's battling and and winning a lot of stuff. So it definitely like the different countries. And I mean, just kind of what's going on and culturally, socially that affect the mindset of the breakers that come from there. But it's so interesting when you talk about very clean, like I was watching your battle against Chinese b-girl from world games Mm -hmm. and that was you won that I think it was the semifinals Mm -hmm. and you won and and she had thrown down some moves I'm like wow that's a slick move that's a slick move but I was like oh but if you're really clean you lose some of the soul almost yeah that's also a really good observation is that sometimes breaking almost becomes sterile like when it's too clean you like lose the soul, you lose some of that like rawness that you get from other dancers who are a little bit looser and just kind of go with the flow. And that was something I personally struggled with because I'm a perfectionist and I wanted everything to be perfectly clean. And, you know, I moved a bit like a robot and I was completely, I looked soulless. And it's not that I wasn't dancing with me, my soul, my heart, but it was just that the choice to make everything so clean made my breaking become less approachable, less, I don't know what word that I would want to use here, but just it didn't have that that essence, that rawness that some other people did. So that's something that I've kind of been trying to work on, you know, personally. But yeah, it, it is an interesting thing because it, logically you think you want your movements to be clean and to execute 
well and kind of, you know, perfect, but there's a downside to that, which is exactly that you lose some of the essence of like the person when they start doing that. So when we're saying clean, let's define what that actually means. Like when you're, when I know you were a gymnast at one point Mm -hmm. in your life where you have to point your toe and have your hands Mm -hmm. in a particular position, but what does clean mean for break-in? Well, there's, this, this is even hard to answer. So when it comes to like power moves, you want your legs to always be like totally straight and you want to have like a very wide straddle. If you're supposed to straddle, if your legs are supposed to be together, they should be together and locked. When you're doing footwork, there is particular movements. So there's something, you know, like I'll call the hook where in the front, you kind of hook your foot around your ankle. So like my right foot, my right knee would be kind of like around my ankle. You want that hook to be very tight. And you don't want that to kind of like open up. And so there's little things here and there that we all know is like would be considered clean form. But when you go and you break that and you get some messiness in there, that's kind of when you get that rawness, right? So it's about finding the right balance for you. And I think a lot of that is also affected by where you dance. So I started dancing in Philly and the people around me were very focused on making sure your form was very clean, especially when you're doing footwork. And So I was always told every step of a six step, which is like kind of our base for footwork, every step of that six step should look like you can take a picture in it. So every single step should be very clean, every body part where it should be every single time. And then in, you know, New York also, people are pretty focused on making sure like you're executing. But in other parts of the world, I don't know that that's necessarily what they're looking for. And I know people who, while they know the sixth step is kind of like that base movement for footwork, there are people in other places who while they know that they have a different foundation for their footwork. And so because of that, their footwork looks very different from somebody who's coming from like the Northeast here. So would you change, since you said you're doing a lot of freestyling and competition, would you change how you're presenting things based on the judging panel and how you see them judging through the round robin? Technically, yes. I could be adapting my movement to the judges. I personally don't like doing that because when I think it gets in your head, when you start to try and change up your, your style, your personality, just based off of what the judges are saying, I think how I see it is I just need to be better, a better me, you know, just do what I do, but up a notch if I'm not doing well. So I, I, because I see this, I see breaking as a form of self-expression I don't necessarily want to change the way I dance or, you know, who I am. Of course, there's always growth and you're always learning and you're changing things and testing things and experimenting, but I want to do what feels good for me when I'm out there. And so, you know, if I were to see that they weren't really liking something, I'd be like, okay, well, maybe I can do this, but just rip it up, do it better, hit it cleaner, be a little bit more musical, you know, do the things that I already do, but just better. I don't know. I've, I don't think I've really ever tried to change the way I'm dancing too much based off the judging is because especially in something like the round robin, you only have about a half hour in between your battles. And so in that time, you're kind of just recuperating, planning your next round, and then just getting in the zone and getting ready to go again. So that would be a lot to think about, I think. <laughs> when you talk about improving yourself, what kind of things do you work on to to make those improvements? That's a big question because it's not just physical. Mm-hmm. I think because this dance is an exploration of me as an individual also, I feel like I'm personally working through mental blocks and you know childhood trauma, all of this, to be able to show up for myself fully when I'm out there. So like one of the issues I was having for a long time is just not being able to believe in myself. Um, despite having, you know, won various events and having the experience that I have, I still felt like I didn't deserve to be up there with all these, all these other dancers and that, you know, I get up there and be like, I can't beat this person. You know, I can't win this. Why am I up here? Why am I even trying? And I think in some cases, while that kind of mentality of never being good enough really drove me to get where I am today, because I was always working so hard to meet this expectation that, you know, honestly, I could never meet. 
it was kind of like a double-edged sword because on the flip side, I would be up there and I wouldn't believe in myself. And to go out there and dance with conviction when you don't really have conviction, it's really, it's difficult. And so, you know, that's been something that I've been working on personally is just learning to value myself, learning that I'm, I'm worth it, I'm enough, being able to go up there and really believe in myself and all the work that I've put in. And like that has actually shown up so much in my dancing and in the way that I can show up for myself when I'm out there. So it's crazy that I feel like more than the physical for me, it's been the kind of mental work that's helped me to improve my breaking. I mean, of course, I'm still showing up to practice. I'm still kind of flopping around on the floor to try and come up with some new movement that feels interesting to me trying to kind of up the technical level of like my power and some of the like more difficult things that I do. But yeah, I feel like that mental work has definitely made more of a difference than anything else that I've done. What cross training are you doing? So I work with a strength and conditioning coach. And right now, well, when I'm in town, we work together three times a week, but I'm so often traveling that that gets a bit challenging. And then she also programs me additional workouts on top of that to do when I'm not with her. I do hot vinyasa. A lot of that's mental. I just need that like moment to just be me and just be with myself. I choose hot vinyasa because it's so hard that my brain just can't wander and be anxious like it normally does. (laughs) It's like if my my mind wanders when I'm doing hot vinyasa, I'm, I'm falling to the floor or on my face. So I do that. It's also good for my mobility and stretching because I tell my coaches all the time, but I always forget to stretch and she gets on me about it, but you know, it's fine. And then I also practice, but I think in terms of like the physical cross training, it's, it's just the training with my coach and yoga, which happens once a week, maybe twice. So speaking of falling to the floor, what, <laughs> what do mistakes in breakdancing look like? I mean, obviously if somebody is hitting a freeze and collapses, mm-hmm. what are the less obvious pieces? The less obvious, you know, what's funny is there are so many people who go out and dance and like we even describe them as people who like their styles are made from crashing because they just are have mastered the art form of falling out of something into something else and making it look nice. And so it's actually really hard, I think, for somebody from the outside to to look at breaking and know exactly when dancers are actually falling out of what they do. We often know because we have seen each other dance before and we have seen somebody hit something really nice. And then if you see them not hit it the next time, but kind of fall into something and then move out of it, you know. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that happening. So a lot of the times, like if you're doing a movement where you're spinning on your head, let's say, and then you come out of it, if they come out of it and it looks a little bit heavy, they probably crashed out a little bit. Or if it comes out and it like doesn't look super elegant, like it's like, oh, did he mean to do that? Probably not. And so there's a lot of that kind of stuff happening. I mean, yeah, there are the obviouses where like you're going to, if somebody falls on their back, you're going to know if it's intentional or not. But yeah, a lot of these other little slip ups, like the judges will know that it's happening. But most of the time, I think to like the average person, it'll be, it would definitely be hard to pick out, especially because, you know, we're literally training to, we're training ourselves to be able to catch these crashes so that we don't crash on a big stage. Not that it never happens still, but (laughs) we're trying to avoid that. (laughs) Okay. Spinning on your head. Where is the strength coming from? Where are you balancing? I mean, you're balancing on your head, but, and I actually, I'm a terrible person to ask because I don't really spin on my head. I only get like maybe one rotation, maybe a little more if I'm lucky, but it's actually what I see when people are learning it. A lot of it's coming from your core. Because it's like you can kind of balance head and neck, but when your core is wobbly because it's not strong, that's where you see people kind of wobble and fall over. So a lot of that strength is actually in your core. What moves do you like to do? I have a wide variety of things that I like to do, and it really depends on my mood. It's kind of funny because if I go to practice and I'm angry, all I want to do is power. I just want to like, like fling my body in circles and throw myself at the floor and do these things that like feel really strong. When I'm happy, all I want to do is dance. And I'm just like, you know, just music's on and I'm flopping my arms around and I'm having fun. I, when I create moves, I like moves that feel good. So I don't tend to watch myself. 
every once in a while I'll film myself and nowadays now that I have to do more social media I find myself filming myself more but it's not my favorite thing I think one of my things early on is I didn't want to watch myself too much because I didn't want to make myself dance the way that my brain thought I needed to dance I wanted to dance the way that my body naturally moved and so I don't like to watch a lot of my movements but I like to just move and see what feels good and if it feels good I start to kind of explore that and so a lot of like my favorite moves are ones that like have this kind of almost like melodic feel when I'm doing them because it because it's just fun to do you know so yeah I don't know it's hard to describe because I could I'd have to show you probably some of them to be able to like go through that. And I mean, the other thing I, I do like to do is power. And part of that's, you know, I have a gymnastics background, so I love doing things that are defying gravity. It just makes me feel strong and powerful. So yeah, that would be the other category of movement that I really like. What's happened to the worm? Where has the worm gone? <laughs> I don't know why the worm was ever a thing. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> It's the one thing I could do because we could all do the worm, Sonny. We needed no talent for the worm. That's why it was a thing. Right. You know, people do integrate like body rolls into their breaking, but you'll never see multiple in a row. Although, honestly, if anyone did do that, I feel like the judges would crack up and I feel like everybody would love it. So maybe it's a good idea. Just saying. You know, something to explore. <laughs> I'll go practice that tonight. <laughs> it does require some core strength to really get yeah. the height on that front part of it. It's true. Yeah, and if much... you can do something cool in and out. <laughs> How much does the music affect what you choose to do? The music affects everything. So we don't pick the song. The DJ picks it. And... Well, I guess, again, this is kind of going back to if you have your round choreographed, it probably doesn't matter what song comes on. But with me, if it's a song that I like, I can just let loose. You know, I'm just like, oh, I think I'm going to end up hitting this thing and then go and just do it because I can kind of trust my body to just have fun with it. If it's a song that I really don't like, I'll probably jam pack my round with a little bit more content because I'll have a harder time connecting to the music. And like finding those moments where I can like hit the beat or do like a move to this to whatever beats coming up or whatever. Yeah, I mean it definitely affects me a lot. But again, that's very different for all of the individual dancers that are up there, I think. Do you recognize most of the music or just sometimes it's like, oh, here's something new? And especially I think about with the Olympics, they may or mm-hmm. may not have stuff with words. Yeah, so at these events they have kind of like a library of music that is cleared in terms of copyright and licensing. So we've heard a lot of it, but the DJs are often creating new music. And so we'll get to an event and sometimes it'll be a song that I've never heard before, which is, you know, it can be really good because it's super exciting when you go out there and you get a beat that's new and it's like super dope. It's terrible when you walk out there and you don't know the song and the beat is bad. (laughs) That's like the worst case scenario is you go out there, you don't know the song and it's not good. But yeah, the vast majority of them at this point, we've heard them and we've danced to them. And, you know, a lot of these DJs release mixtapes. So we practice to those, you know, at local events, you'll hear a lot more like kind of mainstream music or like old school hip hop rap. And so a lot of that, you know, like we're familiar with, but yeah, I mean, it could happen at the Olympics. So fingers crossed that it's a good beat. (laughs) I'm sure you have DJs you like and are not your favorites. Has there ever been an issue where DJs are accused of influencing the competition? Um, I think we, we joke about that a lot. I think at the Olympics, the DJs will be professional, but like at local events, like we used to joke about how this is long ago, but there's this one DJ that had this really dope beat and it was like, like an anthem and he would always play it for his favorite crew. And it was just a really good beat to dance to. And so you just knew that that was coming on if his crew was in the semis or the finals, you know, that kind of thing. 
but those are like local events and honestly it's like it's funny when that kind of stuff happens because you know it's fine i think there are times when i'll go to events and i'm like oh this dj knows this person's music preference and is definitely playing to it but yeah i think at the olympics that that shouldn't or won't be the case I'm ready for controversies. I'm like causing trouble. <laughs> I realize I'm like asking about judging controversies. Well, and well, okay, <laughs> this could be controversial. When a battle starts, it's who gets in there first, right? It's not like oh, you flip, we're we're flipping a coin and Sonny's going first this round, and then that person, somebody just takes the lead, right? Well, actually, in the Olympic system, it's been dictated in the rule book as to who goes really? first. Yeah, so you know, based off of which side that you're placed on, whether you go first or second. However, so there's a red and a blue side. The red side is supposed to go first. Within the first 10 seconds, if the red side doesn't go, the blue side can choose to go. So in that first 10 seconds, someone could just jump out there and take the round. So that has happened before. So actually, I think at the World Games that happened, I was supposed to go first. The battle that you were referencing mm-hmm. earlier, again, 6 seven, one and she jumped out and took it. And I was like ready to go, but she decided to go first. And so that's like an example of like, you can do that if you're on the blue side. So the blue side has a choice. The red side, if the blue side doesn't exercise that choice, has to go first. When that <laughs> happens to you, like what goes through your head? Well, you know, in a normal battle, we don't decide that. And so there's like a bit right. of like a standoff that happens. And so that's what we're used to. We're actually not really used to having that already dictated for us. And so that's actually more like a regular battle when you don't really know. And then someone just jumps out and is like, all right, I'm taking this. So, yeah, it's like that we're actually used to. That kind of interaction of like, oh, okay, fine. I'll go second. And I think like generally speaking, people prefer to go second. That's why these standoffs end up taking so long in some of the battles. And I think that's why in the Olympics they said, all right, you've got 10 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> What's makes... the advantage? Yeah. What's the advantage uh, of going second? Well, so you can watch and react and you don't necessarily run the risk of like throwing too much and you can save a little bit if you need to, or you can kind of strategize a bit better as a reaction to what they're doing versus if you're going first, you're setting the bar. And so that's also, you know, is something that can be good. But I think it's a bit more risky because you don't necessarily know what your competitor is going to do in response. Is the dictating of sides and starting and who starts, does that play into the controversy of breaking within the breaking community about the sporting aspect versus the dancing aspect in a way where you go, uh, we're not sure we want to be in the Olympics because it could ruin the community thing. Does that make, mm-hmm. am I making sense there? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily like any one element of the rule book that Mm -hmm. people are worried about. I think there's just a general sentiment around breaking going to the Olympics and what that could do for the, what that could do to harm or kind of take away from the roots of breaking Mm -hmm. and kind of where we all come from. The thing is, and I guess how I see it is that Breaking has always had this arm that was competitive. And over the last few years, it's been growing with events like BC1, we have Undisputed, all these like kind of big one-on-ones. And, and we do, there are some big crew battles too, where they're on a big stage and they're these produced events. And it kind of has pulled away already from that like community vibe that we have at like local jams where... I mean, we still have jams that are outside at a park or outside in some kind of like garden venue or outdoor venue. They'll be in bars and all sorts of stuff. Like we still have that. There's always been that element of competition that kind of lived outside of that, that was branching off and kind of pulling away from those community things. And so the Olympics, I think, will probably do that and and take it a step further. So it was already kind of going that way. And it was an element of breaking that already existed. I do understand the sentiment of like losing the culture and the community because at the end of the day, that's why we were all drawn to dancing, you know, and that's why a lot of us stuck with dancing. But that piece is never going to go away. 
I think there's concern about them not getting some of the financial benefits that come with the Olympics and stuff like that. So I think it's just our responsibility to make sure that we're diverting some of that attention to the community and to the people who really deserve it. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely a really complicated topic. There's a lot of pieces to it. So I think, you know, it's a lot bigger than just like any specific rule in the rule book, but it's just this idea of this one specific, it's a one-on-one format only, which is also only one type of battle that we do. Going to the Olympics to a very specific type of music that is a little bit different from what we normally listen to with a very specific judging system. So, yeah, I think it's a tough topic to talk about, but definitely important. And it well, it also seems like then the public, the general public gets an idea that breaking is only this one thing. If they mm-hmm. only see the sporting arm and mm-hmm. they could miss the whole rest of the genre, so to mm-hmm. speak. Yeah, 100%. But I think the hope is with this new generation is that you, you come and you learn from people in the community who will enforce those things that we love about breaking. It's like recently I was actually just went to like a breaking summer camp and, you know, they broke the kids up into groups and then they had the kids help each other with the movements, you know, kind of building the sense of community from a very young age and accountability to to learn these movements together. It's like, oh, you're the best one at it. So why don't you help everyone else get in your group? You know, like watching that kind of stuff. That's hopefully what people who get into breaking and say, hey, hey, I want to take a class or hey, I want my kids to learn this. They'll go to studios and that's the kind of foundation that hopefully they'll be getting, you know, is all those things that we love about breaking because they will at the end of the day have to come back and most likely will learn it from somewhere. There's going to be people who probably just watch it on YouTube and practice at a community center. But even so, like so many of our practices are at community centers. They're like large open practices where you're going to be dancing with other people from different generations of breaking. And so they're going to be exposed to the culture at large anyway. And so, yes, I think people may start by only knowing that, but I think just by dancing and inevitably being part of this community, you kind of get exposed to everything else. What do you want people to know about it before they watch it in Paris? I think one of my favorite things about breaking is actually like the diversity that we have in the community. So breaking... You have a lot of people who now start in studios, and so you do pay for classes, but technically you don't really need anything to get started. You just need some floor and ideally some music, but some people start even without that. And you can kind of just, like, figure it out. And so with that kind of lack of barrier to entry, um, and, like, honestly, I, I see people with all abilities dancing too, which is really cool. I just recently I saw an event, and in the finals, there was a guy who had one leg who battled against the other person who's amazing, you know, and seeing stuff like that is is really cool. So having that kind of access to breaking makes it so that the community is really diverse. And so you'll go to a local event and you'll see children there with their parents. You see people of all ages, all ethnicities, just the, the full spectrum, you know, is there in one room together, all sharing this moment. You know, and I mean, even like language doesn't really get in the way because we're dancing. And so we're communicating in a way that you don't necessarily need to speak. And then we just have these like nonverbal cues that are like, oh, that's dope. You know, and you just kind of like, you're sort of waving your hand. (laughs) But um, (laughs) yeah, so it's, there's this beauty in what we do and that you can share in a way with so many different people that we don't normally get in our everyday lives. I mean, like I live in New York and it's diverse, but when I go to a breaking event, it's just so much more diversity concentrated in one room. It's just, it's so incredible to see. And I absolutely love it. And then on top of that, there's like this accountability that I'm noticing more and more where like the older generation will watch out for the younger ones, or they'll say like, hey, they'll teach them lessons. Like somebody stepping out of line, like you'll get somebody pulled aside and you're like, hey, you can't do that. Like they're kids or, or whatever. So it, it really is a really cool space to be in. Not to say that there aren't some bad, of course, there isn't everything, but I think that's one of my favorite things about breaking and one of the things that I find to be just incredibly beautiful about what we do. Speaking of generations, where in the generations do you lie? Because if I look at your age, I go, oh, 
an old person. <laughs> we get excited because we are old as well. But I mean, like, there's are there still breakers that are in their fifties? Yeah, actually, and there's one that um, he posts videos often, and I think he's like in the sixties. And they have they have battles. There's actually a pretty famous battle happens in LA. It's called Freestyle Session, and they have an over forty category. And oh, geez. They're they're amazing. They're still amazing over 40, just saying. But yeah, you do have and even if they're not necessarily breaking, there's all there's like similar styles of dance that people go and they'll do and still partake in when they're older. But yeah, you see older people who used to break that still come out just to support events and stuff. There's definitely a lot still out there. I don't plan to like give up. While I might not be breaking like I am today forever. I'm sure that there will be some sort of like breaking in my life into my 50s and 60s. Yeah. You'll be doing the worm, Sunny. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> the only thing maybe. You can do. <laughs> That'll be my signature. I'll do four, four in a row into something really dope afterwards. And that'll be what I'm famous for. Post-Olympics. <laughs> maybe a little pop and lock so that, you know, no, you don't have to get on the floor too much. Oh, excellent. Sunny. Thank you so much. Best of luck on your way to Paris. Hopefully we will see you there. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Sunny. You can follow Sunny on Instagram. She is underscore Sunny Choi. And on TikTok, she is at Sunny Breaks. I got to say this was fun. This was She's, great fun. She is really smart and I love talking with smart people. <laughs> so thank you, Sunny. If you like smart interviews with smart people, you should check out our friend Elizabeth Emery over at Hear Her Sports. Not just great interviews with sporty women, she also gets into elements of conversations that are applicable to life outside sports. So she recently had on sailor Sarah Douglas, who really talked about taking charge of a goal and going after it in an organized way and how she used spreadsheets to keep track of everything and coordinated groups of sailors to train with and a group of coaches to help her on her way to the Olympics. So if you are looking for help and examples of how to solve problems in your own life, you might want to look to the sporting world. And Elizabeth does a great job of looking into those things. And Elizabeth was the brave woman who attempted to teach me how to cycle. <laughs> yes. So. <laughs> so big fan of Hear Her Sports and her bravery. So along with being a fantastic podcast host, she tried to get it to work, but we, we won't so talk close. about it. Yeah, so close. And yet so far. Next time. Next time. So yeah, check her. Check out Hear Her Sports at hearhersports.com or dial it up on your podcasting app that you're listening to right now. That sound means it is time for our history moment. All year long, we are talking about Seoul 1988, as it is the 35th anniversary of those games. Annalie, our lovely intern, has a follow-up from last week. Annalie, talk to us. What do you got? Thank you, Jill and Allison. First off, I'd like to thank Patrick of Chicagoland for sending us some clips of the Byung-Jun Il controversy. One of the videos he sent, he sent to us was a more detailed description of the Beyond Jun Il fight. And it also shows a more detailed video of the Beyond Jun Il protest where he is sitting in the ring for 67 minutes. But the most interesting thing is you get to see in the video when he sits down, you get to see all the lights turned off and him sitting in the room. And in the BBC interview, which is another video that our good friend Patrick sent. He talked about trying to push one of the Korean coaches out of the ring because he saw one of the Korean coaches try to get into the ring to talk to him about the score. Keith Walker says he felt calm at first, but as the situation started to ex escalate, he started to feel, quote-unquote, unsafe. In a guarded room, Keith Walker was able to watch the footage of the attack after being escorted by police out of the ring. In an article by The Age which showcases a more detailed description of what he watched on the footage. He says he felt that his warning of Bion's headbutting was a good move. He quoted, I could have disqualified him in the second round when he and his coach and assistant coach came out 
onto the apron of the ring. I did the right thing and look what happened. It's a disaster for, bo for boxing. After the fighting and 25 years of refereeing, Keith Walker decided to quit his job as a referee. He is currently chairman of Boxing New Zealand and honorary vice president of the International Boxing Federation. Unfortunately, I could not find any information on if Keith Walker went to the hospital, although I would assume he would have had to due to the extent of his injuries. Yeah, I would have quit too. Seriously. Well, thank you, Annalie, and thank you, Patrick, for sending those links along. We will put links to the video and this really cool audio interview in the show notes along with Annalie's article that she found as well. What a story. What a story. Yeah. Thank you again, Patrick, for sending us the videos. Moving on to our regularly scheduled story. It, my turn for a moment and we have not gotten into the pool yet so I wanted to start talking about the swimming competition I don't know about you Allison but what I remember of swimming 198 was Janet Evans everywhere yes okay so Janet Evans was a distance swimmer and she won gold in all three of her events but what about the sprints right oh yeah the 100-meter freestyle, Americans, because that's obviously we're getting the very American angle of the Olympics here. Americans could pin their hope on a woman who was competing in her second Olympics, one Dara Torres. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> right? But sadly, Dara was not a factor in the 100-meter. She finished seventh. Or Dara was not a factor in the 100-meter free. She finished seventh in that race. But if you really, honest, honestly, I don't know why we don't remember this story. And I, I would love to go back and see NBC's f coverage of it. If you were looking at women's sprints in the pool, there was one name who cleaned up almost all of the gold medals. And it was the first time a woman would win six gold medals in any sport at an Olympics, a mark that hasn't been matched or beaten since. And unlike Mark Spitz before her and Michael Phelps after her, she won gold medals in three individual strokes. Uh, she did two freestyle events. She did the 50 meter, which women swam for the first time at Seoul, the 100 meter free, plus butterfly and backstroke. Spitz and Phelps only did freestyle and butterfly. Now, Phelps also did individual medleys, but those really kind of hinged on his butterfly and his freestyle skills. This woman also got gold in two relay events and had women had a 4 by 200 meter freestyle relay event to swim and compete in at Seoul, she perhaps would have tied Spitz's record. How could this feat have happened? She was East German. Oh... Uh... <sighs> We are talking about Kirsten Otto, who was the heavy favorite going into Seoul, who delivered on all accounts. Otto had been a star since the 1982 World Championships and likely would have been at LA 1984 if it weren't for the Soviet-led boycott. In late 1984, she cracked a vertebrae and was in a neck brace for nine months. Doctors advised her to give up sports, but she refused and continued to dominate in the pool at Seoul. She was six feet tall, about 170 pounds. William Gildea in the Washington Post wrote, quote, she looks, she cuts through the water like a powerboat. But what she didn't do was test positive for drugs. And we Ever? all never. Because wow. you know how it was, the East Germans and the big doping campaign, if they were doping and they would do their own testing, if they were testing positive, suddenly they were sick. Right. And didn't compete. Remember, but she competed everywhere and she never tested positive. So she was also surprised at her success. And Sports Illustrated quoting her as saying, quote, I didn't come here with a plan to win many gold medals, just one or two. I'm happy and quite frankly, astonished. Yeah. In a 2022 retrospective article in Swimming World magazine, editor John Lon wrote that Wolfgang Richter, East German head coach at Seoul, said, Otto's mental toughness was a major factor in her success. She's the best because she works harder than the rest, Richter said. She's tough in the mind. She cannot stand to lose. Please tell me that no other swimmer works hard. I really hate when coaches say things like, you have to want it more. You have to work really All Olympic athletes want it and work really hard. Right. Co commentators, too. She just right. wanted it more. She just wanted it more. She's bringing 110%. Of course, once the German credit did, 
Of course, once the German Democratic Republic fell and the state-sponsored doping program came to light, many athletes talked about their experiences with it, but not Otto. Her response was that she never knowingly took drugs and never had a positive test, and she was one of the most tested athletes in the world. But the paper trail... I was just... That's what I was going to ask you. Oh. But the paper trail did catch up with her. Otto's name was on a list of those supplied with anabolic steroids. She still denies she knew anything about this. Rika Reinisch, a three-time gold medalist at Moscow 1980 who admitted to doping, has publicly criticized Otto for her lack of admission, saying, quote, When she claims she cleaned up in Seoul without taking anything, then I can only say she didn't win six golds by drinking buttermilk. Is so, buttermilk banned? I don't think so. Oh, okay. <laughs> Because <laughs> that list of banned drugs is pretty long. Yeah, right? So Otto is in the International Swimming Hall of Fame, but now there is a doping disclaimer next to her display. It's very hard. Oh, sorry. No. Go ahead. Go ahead. It's very hard to have East German swimmer and not immediately think doping. Isn't it sad? You know, if you wanted a triple dose of soul this week... <laughs> You should check out our Facebook group because listener Manu posted an amazing soul story, which I almost, Manu, I almost took that and made it my soul story for this week. But if you want to know it, you should go check out the Facebook group, even if that's the only thing you join in Facebook. Keep the Flame Alive podcast. Welcome to Shukflastan. Our athlete Shukflastanis have been very quiet lately. This is true. And I realize we need more swimmers <laughs> be, and we need more water people because that's been the big events the past couple of weeks is everything with the Aquatics World Championships. Exactly. But luckily, our listener Shuklastanis have been busy. Belatedly, superfan Sarah went to the Volleyball Nations League final. Patrick from Chicagoland saw the Core Hydration Classic, which, the, which is no, the gymnastics tournament that Simone Biles made her comeback at. And then listener David also covered a live golf tournament near him. People have been busy. People have been busy. And they all looked like really cool events. So thank you to all of you for sharing that in our Facebook group. If you go to something, let us know. Even if you're not in the Facebook group and you go to something cool, let us know. And don't forget to wear your Keep the Flame Alive gear. Find that at flamealivepod.com. Bonjour. Bonjour. Paris has also been quiet, although it is it's August, so my guess is that some of them might be on vacation. Everyone's on vacation. <laughs> there was an open water swimming World Cup event in the Seine that was going to be a test event. It was postponed for at least 24 hours because of unacceptable water quality in the river. Okay, here's the deal with this. Heavy rains caused overflows of untreated waste into the river. I don't know about you by where you live, but I live by Lake Erie. This happens all the time. This is not anything unusual because what happens is you have old sewers or outdated water treatment methods. And so there's a lot of overflow that goes into your local body of water. It clears out after a few days because it just dissipates. But sometimes there's a little period of time, and I, I believe the Paris 2024 schedule has some built-in time if they need to move things around. If it rains again, the city is spending a ton of money on water management projects that should ease some of these problems. The, that includes a giant underground reservoir that would hold excess stormwater and doesn't do runoff, and they can treat it later. But yeah, this was a thing. World Triathlon also announced it has a plan B if during the Olympic schedule, the Seine is not clean enough or safe enough for the swimmers. So the planners are dealing with this. I think it's they moved the race to a different section of the Seine mm. that doesn't get the same level of runoff that you get in the center of the city. So we're addressing this. They're not ignoring it. We're not going to put swimmers at risk. It's going to be fine. But as we know, this may be one of the stories we talk about. If it rains in Paris during the Olympics, all of a sudden everyone's going to be concerned that the Seine is dirty again. Right. But honestly, if it rains, just the media is going to have a field day. 
with this because they're just going to go nuts over the fact that the sun never got didn't get as clean as they said it was going to be and that swimmers can't swim for a couple of days i think we need a game i don't think it necessarily should be bingo because it can't be one of these if you see a mention of x event you get to cross that off in your bingo card because there's just going to be a ton of mentions right and we have opening ceremony bingo right which the center square i think needs to now be imagine because that's almost guaranteed. But And we talked about this a little bit with Ken Hanscom last night. What's going to be the story like Zika that just, and before COVID at Tokyo, it was the heat, that one environmental thing that just proves to the world that the Olympics are not viable anymore. Right, right. So if you've got theories of what kind of game we could have or the stories that will be blown out of proportion or maybe not the big stories, let us know maybe we or how to play that game. We'd love to hear what you do because I can tell you we're going to be talking about this media, the media coverage of these issues a fair amount. Because we're not going to get to watch Mike and Maya commercials. That's true. Makes me sad. We'll just rewatch that Mike and Maya commercial. That's right. I think it's time for me to go do that now. So that is going to do it for this week. Let us know what you think of breaking being on the Olympic program. You can let us know on Twitter and Instagram at FlameAlivePod. Email us at FlameAlivePod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. Be sure to join the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. And don't forget to get our weekly newsletter filled with other fun stories about this week's episode. You can sign up for that at our website, flamealivepod.com. One last thank you to our intern, Annalie Davel. It's her last show with us, and we've been so thankful to have you all summer. Your help has been so great, and we hope you have a wonderful year at college, Annalie. Next week, listeners, we will have a voice you may recognize, conversation coming with commentator Blythe Lawrence about rhythmic gymnastics. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive.